0: This is a show about digging deeper and sharing our stuff. I'll go first. I have never met today's guest in person before. And in fact, we have only communicated directly with a handful of emails and a couple of text messages. And yet today, when I hopped on to record with her, we ended up chatting for a full hour before we even pressed record. So clearly, we have a lot to say to one another. My guest is fellow author Elizabeth Passarella, and we have so much in common. We have similar writing journeys. We both have written two books, and they came out around the same time, each of them. We also share similar life journeys. We both left our hometowns, places that we had found so much identity, We both left them in our early 20s to move to major cities. Elizabeth is in New York City. I am obviously in LA. And we have stayed in those large cities, building lives and raising families in settings very different from our own childhoods. There were just so many kindred experiences that we truly could have talked for hours more on this episode. Elizabeth Passarella is a contributing editor for Southern Living and a former editor at Real Simple and Vogue. She's spent more than 20 years writing about food, travel, home design, and parenting in a variety of magazines. She's the author of two books. Her first one is called Good Apple, Tales of a Southern Evangelical in New York. And her newest one just came out this spring. I loved it. It is called It Was an Ugly Couch Anyway and Other Thoughts on Moving Forward. Elizabeth grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, and she currently lives in New York City with her husband and three children. Elizabeth and I talk about her experience moving from the South to New York City. We talk about what happened when she bought an apartment in her building that belonged to a hoarder, and that is what inspired this latest book, and the ways that she is able to write so honestly about her family. I truly enjoy Elizabeth Passarella. I love her writing, and I know that you will love this conversation. Elizabeth, welcome to 10 Things to Tell You. Thank you
1: so much for having me, Laura. I'm thrilled to be here.
0: I'm so excited for you to be here. I also think it's funny to do this introduction when listeners, y'all should know we've been talking for a full hour Mm -hmm. before I actually press record. And we have been doing that because I've never met Elizabeth in person, but we have so much in common that I said to her... The second we got on this video, we have a lot
1: to talk about and we must discuss. Yes. And I love how we just jumped right in. There was no, it's so good to see you or how are things or tell me what's going on in your life. We just went straight to some publishing, publishing issues, living. I don't know. We went straight to the, to the really important stuff. We did not dilly dally around. So it's, yeah, it's good to talk to you. No, we've never met. And I consider us friends.
0: Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's what's so funny about this world of writing and being online and all of these things. So, for my listeners who do not know you yet, will you please give just a sort of a brief introduction of who you are, what you do in this world, a little bit of your story? Because that's what we're going to talk about today in light of your newest book called It Was an Ugly Couch anyway. But I want them to hear from you before we talk about all those things.
1: Sure. Um, So I am, my name is Elizabeth Passarella. I'm a writer and I live in New York City, but I grew up in Memphis in Tennessee. So that's one thing that you and I kind of have in common is we grew up in these sort of, I don't know, you do you call Oklahoma the South or do you call it the Midwest sort of? I I never really know exactly, but. This
0: is a good question and I'm glad you asked it. Okay, can we start
1: there? Because I really want to talk about you, but first, let's talk about me. I no. think of it as part of Texas, almost, which I'm sure offends Oklahomans and Texans alike. But that's how I think about it. It's not, I think of it as kind of Southern, but maybe you don't. So, no,
0: I do. It okay. is geographically like the dead middle of the country. Like Oklahoma City is actually the very center of the United States. But culturally, it is so much more Southern than it is Midwestern, so much more, and then a subset of Southernness, it is more like Texas than it is Southern, like Georgia, right? So it is southern, and then it but then it is also particularly Texas style Southern rather than deep okay. South, so I
1: was right, basically, okay,
0: you were totally right. It okay. is synonymous with Texas culturally, which, yes, is offensive to all parties. (laughs) And it's funny because when I pose myself as a Southerner in some ways, like when I, you know, I'm trying to sort of just illustrate something about whatever I'm saying, sometimes people, and it's always coastal people who are like, wait, Oklahoma's the South? yeah, Because most Southern people who are snobby about their Southerness and the different parts of the South sort of do understand that, like, literally historically, I'm not trying to give anyone a history lesson, but literally in American history, as things moved west, this gets to be very tricky territory (pun intended). As things moved west, Oklahoma is it's southern. That's my but, my long answer.
1: That's your long answer. Okay. Well, and also. And then you've got places like Florida that are very geographically South, but I don't think of of Floridians as Southern in the same way. There's a lot of different Souths. In fact, to bring it back to the book, I actually write about this in the book, how there's kind of different Souths because I grew up in Memphis. I went to college in North Carolina and the South of like the Carolinas and Georgia, Savannah, Charleston, that area is really different from the South that I grew up in, in Memphis, kind of the deep South. We're really more part of Mississippi and Arkansas in Memphis because it's so far Southwest in in the state. So I grew up in Memphis. I moved to New York right after college and I have lived here ever since. So I've actually lived in New York longer than I've lived really anywhere else. I've lived in New York as an adult longer than I ever lived in Memphis um, in those 18 years. I have been a magazine editor for over 20 years, I moved up here to work for newspapers and magazines. So I have written for lots of women's magazines. I worked for a time at InStyle. I worked at Vogue. I worked at Real Simple for a really long time. And a couple of years ago, I started writing books, or not more than a couple of years ago, about four or five years ago, I started writing books. So I have two essay collections that have come out. The first one was called Good Apple. It came out in January of 2021. And then this book, which just came out in May, is called It Was an Ugly Couch Anyway, And both books are just collections of essays about my life. So they cover kind of moving from the South and like the Bible Belt area to the East Coast to sort of a liberal, you know, New York City and changes that happened in my life. I I talk about falling in love with the city and my husband a lot in the first book. I write about parenting and sort of marriage this book specifically also follows this kind of crazy roller coaster path of buying a hoarder apartment in our apartment building that we had lived in for many years, that we really loved and wanted to stay in. And we'd kind of outgrown our apartment. And we have this opportunity to buy an apartment that had been abandoned in the bottom of our building on the first floor from a very eccentric older woman a neighbor. And so it follows this up and down chaotic ride of buying this apartment from this woman. So that's, that, that is kind of the, the tying, the unifying theme, I guess, that goes through this book.
0: Yeah. And that's why I want to talk a little bit about home today in our conversation, because we share so many things in common, including our publishing schedule. We both published in (laughs) 2021 (laughs) and then now here in 2023.
1: Our books all like, came out about a month apart. They 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 both, both of our books came out one month apart from each other, both times.
0: Yeah, same time of year. And including, I said I wasn't going to say this publicly, and yet, here I go, including that you have written these two books that are books of essays about you and your life and your life experience. And I am jealous, Elizabeth, <laughs> That you were able to write your story in this way because my two books, which I love, I love both of my books. I'm glad that they turned out the way that they did. I really feel like a purpose in both of my books. But I didn't have the courage to write them in the way that you have written your experience. I couched these stories that I wanted to tell, these people I wanted to write about, these adventures that I've had or these deep or not so deep thoughts that I've had, I couched them in both of my books, have a self-help bent. You know, they have a teaching angle, which again, fits the other work that I'm doing. But I just want to say to you, I do want to say it publicly. I'm glad I'm saying it publicly, (laughs) that people who write about their life, they just say, this is it. This is the story. This is the essay. This is the point I'm trying to make.
1: I admire it. Well, thank you. That is really nice of you to say. And I will just come back and say that, number one, I feel like I very quickly tell people when I'm talking about my books, please do not buy them expecting any sort of life help or inspiration in any way, shape, or form. So I feel like I'm jealous that you even have philosophies and and systems and ideas to sort of help people in their friendships and whatever, because I have none. This is all I got, Laura. Is like dumb stories about my life to make people feel sort of less alone about that but and i just want to say publicly too because we didn't even talk about this before we started recording but i sent you an email i think we were on like a we were on a panel together uh, uh, and that was kind of the first time we'd ever even seen each other's faces on a computer screen or on a panel together and i think i emailed you and said Maybe I, I had, I'd hesitated reaching out or I'd done something because I was jealous of the fact that I knew your books sold so well compared to my books, because people were craving some sort of life help and some sort of structure to think about their lives and sharing themselves online and all of these different things. And I feel like I was a little bit insecure about that. So see, that just goes to show guys. Everybody has their own insecurities about their work and everybody is looking at other people and thinking, I wish I could just be doing what she is doing, or I wish I had this, that, or the other that she has. So maybe it's a good lesson for everybody listening that even the two of us were jealous of something that the other one was doing.
0: Except we must conclude that story because (laughs) you sent me this email. Listeners will appreciate this for sure. So we did this Zoom panel together about writing or something. I don't even remember what we're talking about, but you sent me this lovely, beautiful email that was sort of exposing that you had had a bit of an insecurity about us publishing around the same time. It was such a vulnerable, funny, nice email. The second part of this story is that (laughs) it took me, and I am not exaggerating y'all. One year. Yeah. A year. A year.
1: I was going to say, if I answered her. Did not help with the insecurity, Laura. (laughs) Did not help with the insecurity when I was like, I think I called my one friend who sort of listens to you religiously and knows who so a lot, knows you. I was like, I don't know. I, I don't, I clearly, I said too much. It's been however many months and she's never written me back. But you did. You did a write year, me. A year. I do get to emails.
0: If it takes me a calendar year, I apologize. I always apologize profusely. It's not personal. And I wanted us to be friends. Did I blow it by taking a,
1: a God-given 12 months? To Here back. we are. Here we are. And we are <laughs> friends. And I really don't care. I feel like we're, life is busy. I mean, I, I did not mention in my introduction that I have three kids. You have two kids. Life is busy. And don't worry. I was really not offended. I don't really get offended by things like that. I'm probably the perfect friend to have if you're not great about emailing back or texting back because I tend to not really care. And And we made it. We made it, Laura. Here we are. Noted. I have put in my file
0: <laughs> folder for you that you do not care. I don't. If I do not write back. So this brings us here, your new book, this book of essays, but that has a sort of through line, like you said, of leaving your apartment of many, many years and buying another apartment in the building that was owned by a hoarder. That's sort of a, like how you sort of kept some structure going, but there's, so many beautiful and vulnerable and hard stories in this book about your dad, about your husband, about your kids, about how you feel about having kids in the first place. It's like really touching, but let's start with the, before we get to the the sort of more tender places, maybe let's start with this idea of home. And I don't want to like recall 20 plus years ago in your life, but I do for people who aren't familiar with your work and what you write about. Like, tell me about being a Southerner living in New York City and Mm. why do you love it? You know, what about it feels like home to you when you had such a different childhood? Like I find home to be I mean, I guess we all do maybe both spiritual and like logistical. Like there's, it's also sometimes tied to a literal place, a literal house or location or region. And those of us like you and me that straddle two senses of home, like we have a home of our childhood, of our roots, and that really matters to us. And then we've fallen in love with these places that are really the opposite of that. And we can't always make sense of it, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on it.
1: Well, I think first of all, I mean, not to get immediately kind of woo-woo spiritual about this, but I did not want to move to New York. When I was in high school and college, really when I was applying to colleges, my dad really encouraged me to look at some schools in the Northeast, and I was so adamant that I would not go above the Mason-Dixon line. I mean, I wrote about this in my first book, like how would I ever go to the north and live in the north and, you know, be with all of those Yankees? So, Clearly, something supernaturally changed in me between that and graduating from college. Because when I moved here from college and kind of the reason the change that happened was, you know, I, I wanted to go into magazines or newspapers. If you want to go into magazines at the time, this was 1998, 1999. There weren't a lot of places you could go. New York was sort of it if you wanted to work for a big magazine. There were some magazines in Birmingham. I had done that for a summer, but I wanted to be in New York. And when I got here, it really and truly was just a cosmic sort of supernova going off in my brain saying, oh, this is where you were supposed to be. This is where you were supposed to be to, to, to live your life. And that is really, I mean, I just, I cannot describe it in more concrete terms than that. Other than to say, I loved growing up in the South. I have wonderful friends. I had a great childhood, but I was always a little bit Loud, a little bit inappropriate. I was always pushing against the boundaries of whatever anybody wanted me to do, whether that was in womanhood, in my church, whatever it was. I was always questioning, always pushing, always a little bit of an irritant. And when I got to New York, the things that when I was growing up were seemed to be problematic were suddenly really celebrated, even just in going out and meeting people and meeting boys. You know, I really wanted to meet boys. I was really interested in dating and meeting boys. So I didn't date a lot growing up. And so, you know, even that, my kind of brashness, my loudmouthness, my sense of humor, um, all of those things were really delighted in and, and celebrated and got me somewhere in New York City. So there was just a part of me that felt like, you just kind of a fish in water here. Like I just felt like I felt very, very comfortable in New York City. And I did well in my jobs. So you know, I did well in my jobs. I was good at 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 magazine work and writing and that kind of work. and so I succeeded sort of professionally. And then for me, also, a big part of my story is my husband is from New York City. He grew up in the city and he is a New Yorker through and through. And so that, whenever I have moments in my life or or when we're raising our children now in New York City and Manhattan, and we have moments where things seem a little bit off or a little bit weird or I'm a little bit confused or nervous about something, I just have to remember, and he reminds me, that this is his hometown. So as much as Memphis is my hometown, this is his hometown. And everything that my kids are going through, he did. And to be honest, he did probably a lot more recklessly and a lot more on his own. And things were really different in the 70s and 80s. So that made a big difference, I think, in sort of being feeling comfortable and being in love with the city, is that I have this partner who this is his hometown. And so that makes sense to me. You know, I just think all of us who grew up in a different place and then move to kind of, I don't know, a big city in some way. I think there is this desire to kind of give your kids, especially a very similar upbringing to what you had, you know, like we have this nostalgia kind of for how we grew up. And sometimes we feel like we want to give that to our kids, kind of that sense of, of what we had. And I just, the longer I live in New York, the more I realize that that can be disappointing and almost a little bit dangerous. Like I really enjoy that my kids have a totally different childhood than I do. And it's not because my childhood was bad, my childhood was great, but they are having a completely different one that's also beautiful and wonderful in so many different ways. So I think that when you have kind of this foot in both worlds, it, it, it is really tempting. And I know people who've left New York because they think I wanna give my kids what I had. I wanna give them a cul-de-sac to ride their bikes. I wanna do that. And I think I really delight in, and this is partly just my personality, I really delight in doing something different and breaking the mold and doing something different. So for me, it's fun raising kids in New York and having it be totally different than how I grew up.
0: Yeah, it's not every day that you find a product that you truly love and want to shout about from the rooftops. Well, friends, I have found something that I am genuinely excited to share with you today, and that is Born Shoes. com and use promo code TELL, T-E-L-L, for 15% off and free shipping. Available exclusively to our listeners for a limited time. With sunshine, outdoor activities, and so many fun things to do outside, it is impossible not to enjoy all of these good weather days up ahead. Of course, we all know that more sun and fun means more sweating, and yes, more odor. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Lumi. and use code U, Y-O-U. Jeff and I started to have kids, and there's so many similarities to our stories in that my husband didn't grow up in L.A. He's an Army brat, so he moved around a lot. But he had been here, you know, when I met him, he had been here 20 years or something. And so it it was definitely home for him, felt like home for him. And we thought when we had kids, like when they were babies, we thought, well, we'll do the baby years and stuff here in LA because we, we need to be in LA for mostly work reasons and because we love it. But when they get to be, you know, like where it matters a little bit more when they get to be like 10 or so, we really need to reevaluate. And we thought we were going to move to the South. Actually, we have a home in South Carolina, Mm -hmm. Jeff's family, his parents have returned, have retired to Georgia. My family's all in Oklahoma. So we thought, We're going to do this first decade of parenthood here when they're little and it doesn't matter as much. But I don't want little L.A. bratty kids. I really thought this. Like, I don't want little Hollywood kids. And we will make a big life move. Well, as our kids did get a little bit older and we knew other families here and we got to know maybe L.A. teenagers or or little Hollywood kids better than what we thought we were judging as, like, philosophically. And we were like, oh, no. This is as good a place to raise kids, not as any because there's pros and cons to, you know, raising your kids in a smaller town or in a different type of community. But we have nieces and nephews. We have family friends all over the country. Mm -hmm. And we can see that in the 2020s, which is what my kids are becoming preteens, it didn't matter in the way that we thought it would. Every place has stuff. Kids are dealing with a lot of stuff everywhere. And it wasn't that moving out of Hollywood was going to ensure safety to our kids or ensure a certain type of, you know, being grounded or whatever. We really noticed that, which kind of brings me to, and and so we decided to stay, like unequivocally unequivocally decided to stay. We'd found great community with families and all the other reasons we decided to stay, but it was different than what we thought raising kids in a big city was going to be like. Which kind of brings me to you and I made a decision. You're a, a couple of years ahead of me on it, but we were making the decision to move to the big city in a different time in the world, like basically pre-internet. Yeah. Yes. When for me, my decision to move from Oklahoma to Los Angeles, I was too intimidated to go to New York City. I really wanted to go to London, where I, I had studied abroad, and just didn't have enough money to do that. But it was driven. The decision was driven by. I wanted to be like where the action was. Mm -hmm. I was really drawn to wanting to be to like a global center, you know, like one of these cities that the whole world looks to, of which New York is one. Obviously, Los Angeles is creating the worlds that everyone watches, you know, the entertainment Mm -hmm. capital of the world. So I was really drawn to wanting to be where the action was. And I wonder if now people are making a same, the same calculations because the internet has given such a different level playing field. You don't have to be in a city to be where the action is because yeah. we all have like a different level of knowledge. You know, like truly, this is a bit of a tangent. We're going to get back to your book, I promise. That's fine. But in Oklahoma, the only way I knew fashions and stuff was from magazines. Like there were, you could go to the mall, but like, I didn't understand what the new styles were locally. I had to look outside of my local region to understand the new styles or whatever, whatever you're talking about, fashion, entertainment, yeah. news, anything. That's just not true anymore. With the internet, yeah. we all know all the things all the time. You don't have to be anywhere. You can choose. You can make that choice differently. And I wonder if kids still have, or young, young adults like we were, still have that craving to learn more about the world or something when the internet brings the world to you. And I know that the
1: screen is not the same as life, but I'm just like wondering. It is really interesting too, because post pandemic, especially in New York, when so many of these office buildings in Midtown are kind of empty and people don't have to be in an office constantly, and there's a lot more negotiating going on about working from home and what the hours are going to be and how many days a week you have to be in the office. I wonder, are people going to crave coming to New York? Because it's ex- it's so expensive. I don't think the, the disparity in sort of wealth and what it costs to live in New York was quite as, there wasn't quite as much of a sticker shock. It was still super expensive when I moved here, but I could afford to live here for the most part on like an, an editorial assistant salary at a magazine. It wasn't quite as unattainable, I feel like. And that may change. I mean, you know, I think that if the city... If, if people don't come back to the city as much as we think, then maybe real estate will go down and we'll kind of go through a little bit of a wave and it'll be a little bit cheaper to live here and people will come back. But I do think that's what's so interesting is, I mean, if I'm going to be totally honest, I loved living in New York in those first couple of years because I thought it made me feel special. I thought I was special. Like somehow I was doing something that other people that I grew up with couldn't do, which is hilarious because I went to a tiny all girls school and I graduated with like 42 girls And at one point, 10 of us lived in New York City. So 25% of my high school graduating class lived here. So clearly I was not special, but I do think that staying and sort of building a life here. And my mother would tell you this, that when I come home, she's like, you think you're better than us? Like it was, she was, that, that was what was so annoying about me. And she was right. I did come home with a little bit of a, a little bit of a chip on my shoulder. Like I thought I was better than other people because I'd sort of made it in the big city. So there, I think for me, that was a big part of it was not necessarily, I don't care so much about fashion, which makes it hilarious that I worked at these women's fashion magazines. I was very much a black sheep in that arena, but you know, I felt like I was doing something hard and I was making it and it gave me a lot of self-confidence and it gave me a lot of pride. Now, as you know, life will tear down that pride over the course of your, of your, you know, marriage, children, friendships, losing jobs, all of these things will eventually humble you. So it took a while for me to live enough life to be humbled that I'm not, I realized that, you know, I cannot build my self-worth and my self-pride and my identity on sort of making it quote unquote in New York. But that definitely was it at the beginning for me is I just felt like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm special and cool and I'm, I'm succeeding in some way. And so that just gave me a lot of a lot of confidence in sort of who I was, but yeah, I don't know if, if, if people still feel the same way. I mean, I have nieces and nephews who are adults, young adults, graduated from college. And I don't sense, I mean, some of them come back to New York, but that's because they grew up here because they're my husband's nieces. And and so they, you know, they're from here, but um, I don't sense that there is quite as much of a sort of starstruck nature about cities that there used to be. I think you're right.
0: Well, and I love what you said about it made you feel cool or like you were doing something special. Absolutely. That was an enormous part of moving out of Oklahoma and coming to LA. I did feel cool and it did give me confidence. And in fact, it gave me a little bit of an identity. Like my identity for a long time was Oklahoma girl in Hollywood. I mean, that's what I started my first blog on, but I wrote about that a lot. That was sort of my shtick. I don't regret any of that. Eventually, like you said, I sort of dropped, like, I was like, this is like, not as interesting as it used to be, or, or it's only interesting to me because when I moved out here and thought I was so cool, I mean, I literally pictured Elizabeth, I literally pictured myself going to like my high school reunion and being (laughs) like, yeah, I'm in from LA. (laughs) Right. Okay. So I flew in on the red
1: eye. I flew in on the red eye.
0: I'm only here for a beat. (laughs) (laughs) I would never talk like that, but I did actually do that. Like I did go to all of my high school reunions, having flown in from LA and maybe it's cool for like a half second, but I mean to tell you, we haven't even gotten to the 30 second mark and I'm just an Oklahoma girl again at that reunion. Nobody cares that I live in LA. I don't even care in that moment. And so it sort of got to be like, it was an identity thing that I straddled both publicly as I wrote about it and also a little bit inwardly. But eventually it got to be like, no one ever thought it was as cool as I did. My family and friends also thought what you're saying, like, you think you're better than us. Yeah. And that is straining our relationship
1: and can you imagine how annoying we are i was so oh, the annoying worst. the worst the worst and now you know it's it's funny because i think that it goes the other way too i was also constantly trying to be i was using my southernness to get ahead in certain ways in new york Look at me, write a thank you note for that job interview. Look at me, use these nice manners or be able to throw a party or look at me, get out my silver platters or whatever it is. I played up the southernness in a way, if it helped me in a sense in New York too. Like I am, I am charming. I am, I was raised in a certain way or I have manners in a certain way. And so, you know, I think that we, we use parts of our identity based on both of these places we've lived we use them when it's, when it's, when it's necessary and kind of, and there are parts of us that are always going to be, I know, infiltrated into the the rest of our lives. But I will say, I feel more of a New Yorker now than a Southerner. I, I, I would never say, I would never downplay that I was, that I'm from the South. I love being from the South. I would never ignore that part of me. I love, love, love my friends who still live there. I'm really close to so many people who are in Memphis. My mom is still there, but at this point, And I think it took me a long time to really be comfortable saying this. I'm a New Yorker. I'm really not a Southerner anymore at all. I mean, I, my entire life, my children, everything about my life. And I like that. I'm not, and that's not a a step down for me. It's not, I'm not saying that with like kind of a wink and an excuse or a shoulder shrug at all. I love being a New Yorker. I love this city. I love what it's what it's given me in my life. I love what it's taught me. I really don't see it as a, oh, I'm raising my kids in New York, but I wish I could raise them in the South, or this is what I'm doing, but but I there's this, this, and this that I miss about, no, I am 100% in, and I think this is a really, really, really wonderful place to raise kids, and I'm really happy I'm doing it, and I feel really connected and embedded and rooted in this city in this point. So, I mean, I'm 46. I've lived... Way more than half my life here. So I very much identify as a New Yorker before I identify as a Southerner now. And I think if you'd asked me 10 years ago, maybe even five years ago, if that was the case, I might not have said that, but I would say that now.
0: I vacillate. I will go through times where I feel like I will always be from Oklahoma, like on a deep level. And then I go through times where I'm like, yeah,
1: no, I'm a super Californian, <laughs> you know. And yeah, then I just go- want to say I lost a bunch of readers just now. Like a bunch of people <laughs> were like, well, bye-bye. I really read you because I like that you are a southerner and this, that, and the other. So I just lost a whole chunk of my readership by saying that. But it's the truth, guys. No, I actually think you address
0: that really well and really humbly in the book. At the end of your new book, you address the pandemic. And living in New York in the pandemic. And I thought that that was humble the way you wrote that. Sort of, it it has some themes of what we're talking about, like feeling high and mighty or feeling righteous about something. And then also maybe sort of realizing Mm -hmm. that we're all doing the best we can. We're all finding identity where we can and what feels good to us. And that's not 100% throughout a lifetime. Things can change. Decisions are complicated. I really liked how you wrote about that part of uh, New York, staying in New York throughout the pandemic versus those who left and you, you had mixed feelings about all of it. I think that's a, that's a tender thing to write about. You actually, I want to write, I want to ask you about a couple of tender things that you write about, but. You're
1: being very gracious to me. I was not super nice about it. I was actually really, really pissed at people who left New York City during the pandemic at the beginning. And that's where, maybe that was when I just, I I became sort of a 100% solid New Yorker. I was really mad when people left. And I, under, I understand it now. Obviously, everyone was just handling a completely unprecedented situation in their own way. But I got really upset when friends of ours fled to the Berkshires or fled to the Catskills or wherever, left and flew to Utah and rented a house for ski season. I was so mad about it. And I was really mean about it. And I was really bitter. And I think it came out of a sense that I loved this city so much. And I was here during 9-11. I mean, I've lived here a long time. I was here during 9-11. So... Um, You know, I lived through that too, but I just, I loved the city so much. And I felt like, oh my gosh, the city is really, really hurting. And I felt like a a mother hen in a way. I felt like you are being unkind to my child. You're kicking her when she's down or something. I, I felt really protective and maternal about New York city. So maybe that is where this came from, but I wasn't super nice about it at first. And I have slowly, again, been humbled by life. And other people's just experiences and trying to be open to everybody else's experiences that I'm not bitter about it anymore. Yeah, I was, I was upset. I was mad. And I felt like people were were abandoning New York because it wasn't, you know, quote unquote, fun anymore. And you couldn't go out to dinner and you couldn't go to shows. And I just thought, oh, but I love it so much without all of that. Mm-hmm. And I think that was a real eye-opening moment for me that I, I'm i not going anywhere, even if there's no restaurants. I'm not going anywhere anywhere even if my kid's school is, you know, shut down or this, that, and the other, I'm not going anywhere. Even if I can't do all the things in New York that I love to do, I'm, I'm staying because I love, I love my neighbors and I love our community and I just love everything about the city. And, you know, listen, I feel my friends who live in Memphis feel the same way about Memphis. There's so much Memphis has a, a lot of crime right now. There's such a like difficult racial racial history in the South, especially in Memphis. And I think, People can kind of, you know, poop on Memphis sometimes. And I look at my friends who live there and they think, no, 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 this is my home and I love it. And I'm here working for it's good. And I'm here loving it when it's not perfect. And so that was me during the pandemic with New York. I felt really, really connected and maternal about the city and about loving it, even when it didn't have much to offer me. I wanted to be able to offer it something.
0: Well, I liked your perspective on it because... You know, L.A. had its own set of problems as the most locked down city in America throughout most of 2020. And I have found it really interesting and cathartic and historic to read different accounts as now in, you know, three years out, we're starting to get this to show up in books. Right. Like, I mean, I'm enough removed from it a little bit. We are enough removed from it a little bit to be able to read that with interest instead of with like rage or all the different feelings that we might have had before. I don't want to derail us here. I do want to mention that the rap group, three, six mafia that is from <laughs>
1: Memphis. Memphis, they Yes.
0: They wrapped our wedding
1: save <gasps> the date. No. And I feel like I needed to mention that real quick. <laughs> yes, you do. I mean, when they won that Oscar, they won an Oscar, right? They won the Oscar for, they won the Oscar for what's the name of the movie? Hustle, the mm-hmm. Hustler. It's, it hustle. it's not the Hustler. It's not the Hustler. I believe you. You're, this is your this is your world. Laura. I'm not supposed I'm not supposed to know the name of the movie, but I do know the rap group. And of course I had never heard of them. I mean, surprise, surprise, the like goody two shoes Christian girl from Memphis had never heard of three six mafia. It's shocking, I know, but I do remember being just like super excited that this Memphis, you know, sort of homegrown Memphis group had won an Oscar. It feels great. And I think that's hilarious that they wrapped your Save the Date. Well, they wrapped the Save the
0: Date. If I can find the audio, I'll pop it in here. Uh, But they basically say Jeff and Laura, Savannah, Georgia. Um, Cause that's where we got married and we had it made into like DVDs. Cause this was 2007. So yep, DVDs yep. and we mailed them out. I saved the dates. Like that's amazing. So you put the DVD in. Well, let me tell you what, who did not think it was amazing. My parents or anyone of <laughs> their generation <laughs> who received this DVD, put it in and are expecting maybe a beautiful montage of the happy couple. Sure. Nope. Instead it was three six mafia. <laughs> holding their Oscar and rapping about our wedding. I thought it was hilarious and oh unique. It had a mixed reception. I'll be
1: honest. I okay. can imagine. I can imagine.
0: Okay. But moving on from that, I just, you, you said Memphis multiple times and I just felt like I had to share that. <laughs> so throughout the book, we're talking about you're selling your apartment and buying another one in the building and there's hijinks ensue. <laughs> like yeah. it's, It's funny. It's stressful. I can just feel it in your words that you really wanted this apartment. And it was taking a really long time to make this go through. I have to ask you, as a writer, were you seeing it as a metaphor as it unfolded? Or were you just like, no, I just want to buy this apartment. I'm not going to write about
1: it. No. Oh, my gosh. Are you kidding? I was taking notes every step of the way, Laura here's what happened about this book. So you mentioned like, this was, this was my second book. I had a two book deal. So I knew I was writing a second book, but the first book, when you sell a nonfiction book, as you have mentioned many times in your sort of helpful podcasts about writing a book, you kind of, you have an idea of what's, what it's going to be because that's how you sell it. So, I mean, I knew the first book, I knew every chapter, I knew the order of everything. I knew the entire roadmap of where it was going. And then this book was just very open-ended. It was like, you know, they gave me so much freedom, which was lovely, but it was the middle of the pandemic. I was in the worst mood. I had no sense of humor. I thought if I write anything down right now, and I did, and I sent a bunch of stuff to my editor and my agent, and they both sort of came back to me and they were like, you sound mean. I don't know what to tell you. You don't <laughs> sound like yourself. So yes, the first step that I that I came up with, again, I was writing from a place of just chaos and pain as we were all going through. And I was trying to put something together. So this apartment was really a gift in a lot of ways. It was a great story. It's a great story. And it had a great character, this woman, Lois, it's not her real name, but I call her Lois in the book, who was this neighbor. She did not live in the hoarder apartment. She lived elsewhere. She This apartment had belonged to her late husband and he had died. She lived in a different part of the city, but had hung on to this apartment for forever. And, um, so it had a great character, the story. And every time I talked to her on the phone or my husband and I had a conversation about it, I just, I knew that it was a good story and not knowing where it was going was a little stressful. Because I was writing it as it was happening. My first book, I think I wrote so much about, I was reflecting on things that had happened in my childhood. I was reflecting on my early years in New York. This book was written very much in real time. I was taking notes on my conversations with Lois. I was taking notes on my conversations with my husband and what was going on. And so I was writing it as it was happening, which is probably why you can sense and feel the enormous stress coming through the pages. Cause it was, it was so stressful. And there was a time we. Eventually closed on the apartment. I guess I should spoiler alert, we did get the apartment. I do feel like people reading the book are like, I, I just couldn't wait to know if you got the apartment or not. We got the apartment, you guys. If anybody follows me on Instagram, you've seen pictures of the apartment. So we do own it. But we owned it. We closed in May of 2022, and the book was due in May of 2022. So it really all dovetailed in the sense that the story of the apartment was kind of becoming the story of the book. And, and it was also, it, it it was just such a gift because it also tied up so many other things that I was writing about so neatly and just so lovely in such a lovely way in the sense that I was writing about change. My father died in 2019 and I mentioned that in my first book, but I kind of explored that a little bit more in this book. My husband had, you mentioned this, my husband had some really weird health problems and we were kind of navigating the the aftermath of that. And we were coming out of the pandemic. There was a lot of change there. And so... This sense of Lois didn't want to let go of this apartment because she was attached to it. It was a piece of her husband that she could not let go of. I didn't want to let go of this awful, ugly couch that belonged to my dad that was in our apartment. That's the title essay because I was missing him and he wasn't in my life anymore. And I was trying to hold on to this inanimate object as some sort of talisman of him. We hold on to so many things when life is in upheaval, when we were coming out of this pandemic and so many things were unsteady. I think we hold on to a lot because it feels safe and comfortable to us. And so, yes, the that was just that was just a nice serendipitous story that came into my life was this apartment and and how it kind of closely followed the the arc of writing this book, too. So, it was it was just nice.
0: Well, I was going to ask you about some of the stories that you share about loss, like you're saying about letting go and you write really tenderly about some things about your dad and that was emotional. It was emotional for me. And I mean, both my parents are still living, but everybody ages. And I was reading your story that felt close, you know, it felt close and just picturing like how I would also, I could easily see myself attaching a lot of importance to a couch Mm -hmm. when it's not really ever about the couch. Right. And I also thought you wrote, I mean, my favorite chapter in the book, maybe, or essay in the book is about your mother-in-law who is still living. She is. And I guess like writer to writer, these are wonderful stories. Y'all need to go read these stories. You write about your dad running you over with the car. Mm-hmm. I was, as a parent, completely freaked out. Obviously, you're writing it. I know that you're going to survive. I'm alive, myself. guys. I'm alive. All my limbs. Got them all. We're giving all the spoilers in this conversation. <laughs> but no, like I was thinking as I was reading them, like writer to writer, I do sort of want to ask you, like, what is the, how do you do that so well? You know, we think that maybe when we lose someone, we are able maybe to say some of the things that we weren't able to say when they are alive. But you have a sister and your mom. And then, you, and then when you wrote about your mother-in-law, who is very much still living in New York City, I just was like, wow, how is she doing this so well? navigating all
1: of this? And I don't even know, like, what's my solid
0: question here? I don't know. It's just like, how do you do it's that? The answer, the answer
1: to the question is I am dumb. I am not always a smart person, Laura. That's the <laughs> answer to the question. I am misguided very often. I have lived an entire life of opening my big mouth in places that I shouldn't. So I'm extremely used to saying things that people don't like. That's the long and short of it. No, when it comes to my mom and my sister, let me tell you, talking about people who don't think you're cool, my mom and sister could not care any less about, they are so proud of me and they will say that. And then they will just be like, and moving on. They do not. I just don't think they care. They've known me my whole life. They know that I'm a loud mouth. They know I'm an oversharer. My mom just doesn't read my books. Like she will read them. She went on book tour with me. When I went on book tour for this book, my mom came with me everywhere. Cause she's, you know, she's a widow and she's living alone and it was fun for her. So she came to all the little book tour stops. When I arrived in Memphis on pub, like the day before pub day, I did my big pub day event in Memphis at my hometown bookstore. My mom looks at me and she goes, well, I've started it. Okay, Laura, I gave her the book eight months before. I gave her like an early manuscript right when I finished it. She had just started it day before pub day. So that just gives you a sense of how much my mom really kind of cares. My sister reads it ahead of time, and my aunt, my mom's brother's wife, who is very one very close to, they read it ahead of time and they kind of give my mom a heads up as if there's gonna be something that they think that she needs to know about. But they just, I think, don't really I, I don't worry so much about my family. When it comes to other people, like my kids, for example, I mean, I write pretty openly and more vulnerable about having a middle school girl. I love having a middle school girl, but I'm really honest about the hardships of having a middle school girl and our relationship. And it is very fraught sometimes. And, you know, what I tell my kids is I would love to be famous enough that this would ruin your life. I would love it. Unfortunately, kids, I don't sell that many books. I mean, I can do really well. And (laughs) it's not like, You guys, I'm not Prince Harry. So like if they want to get upset about me writing about them, I just want to say, trust me when I tell you the parents of your friends are not reading my book. So I think you're safe, guys. I think you're safe. But I always feel like the most important thing for me, and I've said this a lot of times, and I really, 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 truly mean this. I would never write about somebody else where the person that comes out looking the most in the wrong or the person who has the most to learn isn't me. I always feel like when I write about my mother-in-law that what I want people to take away from that is that I was also, like I say, she wasn't really the mother-in-law that I wanted or that I thought I was going to get. And we did have a kind of strange relationship at the beginning. And at the end of the day... I was also not the daughter-in-law she wanted. Believe me, I was not the girl that she thought her son was going to marry. And so this like, you know, pretty liberal Catholic family on the upper east side of Manhattan did not think that their son was going to marry the evangelical Christian from Memphis. I guarantee you. So she did also did not get what she wanted. So acknowledging that, being old enough and somewhat wise enough to say, I was also not the greatest daughter-in-law. So I hope that when I write about these people, that I am saying, and here's where I messed up too. And here's my part in the story where I also let you down. Well, I think that you write
0: about others really well. I do think you're self-deprecating about yourself, but I admire people who are able to do that because I obviously write about other people in both of my books and not so much in the Life Council, but definitely in my first book, Share Your Stuff. A few things happened after i had written that book. Like if people are going to take, I don't know, issue with something that I wrote or whatever, I internally think, well, if I knew you were going to be mad about that version, I would have written it totally differently <laughs> because yes. I felt that I was generous in that version and
1: I could have done this differently, everybody. I actually, when you are doing like your secret stuff tapes and you're talking to your friends and ex-boyfriends, I'll say, that to me is scarier. Than writing about my family. I feel like my family has lived my life with me and sort of knows me so well that any conversation that's gonna happen in my book has already happened times 10 in my house. And I feel like even our close friends, they know us so well. And so nobody's really shocked by anything that they read. I think it would be harder to write about friends in a way. So, I mean, I, I think that's amazing that you do that and then talk to them about it and sort of get their feedback. I don't want feedback. I mean, my mother gives me <laughs> a little bit of feedback, but you get feedback from people like, oh, how did this go for you when you read this about our relationship? I don't think I could have done that. That's like my favorite part is talking to them after I've written about them. Okay. My mom did say to me and to many people while she was with me on book tour, where she started talking to the crowd because she started feeling bold. But she said to me, kind of after she finished the book. Well, there's a lot about your dad. And I did say, okay, well, mom, it is easier to write about him because he's dead. It is. It is, I I have, I can look back over his whole life and our relationship. We also are a lot more similar. So it is somewhat easier for me to write about my dad and kind of his motivations or his feelings about things because I feel very similarly that he did. We have similar personalities. So I think it's just a little bit easier for me to understand him and therefore write about him. But I said to her, I was like, yeah, when you die, I'll write more about you too. I mean, it is, it is easier when they're dead. So I mean, Beth Moore in her great memoir, she said there were certain people that had to die before she could write about them. Maybe that her list is longer than mine, but yeah, it was easier for me to write about my dad because he's not here.
0: Well, every writer, I think, feels that way about one day I'll get to write about this. I might have to wait it out. For me, I just only write very specific things. So there's so much that I don't say about even the best relationships in my life, even the things that I'm writing about glowingly in the Life Council, even the friends that are my closest, dearest friends, of course, because this is just regular human life. There are complications to even the best relationships or there's been a hard season or there's been hurts or another person that affects that relationship that you can't mention that part or, you know, whatever. There's a lot of things that I don't write. I do this on the show. I do this on social media. And I'm very open about it because I never want anyone who's following along with my life to feel that I'm presenting the whole thing. I'm always sort of careful to say I'm presenting max 25% of this story because I do care about these people or this situation. I do care about how I come off or my career or whatever that I'm protecting something. So even when I'm doing my share your stuff message where I really am like hammering home that I think women protect others too much to their own detriment. And so they stop sharing their stuff. I'm always clear about I am sharing myself with someone. I'm sharing my stuff with someone. I am just not always doing it publicly because these considerations are real. You have to you have to mind your relationships and your job and your perception and all of those things. I don't want anyone to ever think that when I'm saying share your stuff that I'm simultaneously saying burn it all down. <laughs>
1: Well, and I have sort of four friends that I grew up with. They're childhood friends. We've known each other since preschool. I mean, and we went all the way through school together. These are people that I, have we've known each other now for, you know, over 40 years. And I write about them a lot. And I always send the book, an early manuscript of the book to the to those four friends to read. And they kind of fact check for me, you know, and the lovely thing, and this is why I love them so much is so often, yes, they will change little things like we weren't wearing that or we didn't go to that dance or that's actually not what happened with my dad or blah, 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 blah. So they will change little things or little facts that I've gotten wrong. But they also frequently will say to me, Elizabeth, you're being too hard on yourself. Or on the chapter where I talk about, I think I could have been really happy if I'd never had children. I mean, I, it doesn't mean I don't love my kids. I just could see two paths and both equally really fulfilling and wonderful. Like I could have seen a life without kids that could have been, could have been great. And I talk about how I'm sort of an average mother and I I don't, I was never maternal. I don't think that I come to that role naturally. It is very hard for me. And I had a friend, my friend Murph, who texted me. She said, I just read that chapter. And you know what? These are all the reasons why you're a really wonderful mother. And I just want you to know that whether you write about it or not, I know you're trying to tell a story and I know you're trying to be funny and I know you've have a a, a point to make, but you're a really wonderful mother for this reason, this reason, and this reason. And she knows me well enough to know exactly what those reasons are. And so, you know, I think that sometimes, yes, writing about your friends or writing about your family can be difficult. And sometimes it can, it can offer opportunities to reflect things back to you about yourself that, that your friends hadn't told you yet. And this opens the door for them to tell you. And that's really wonderful too. I feel like your book strikes a lot of
0: notes in that way. Actually, like some of the stories are just funny and like flat entertaining because you are funny and and you write in a funny way. Some of them are nostalgic or sentimental, like when you're writing about your dad. Some of them are sort of enlightening when you wrote about your mother-in-law. The story of getting the apartment, which is sort of the through line, has a lot of tension to it. Like, you know, like you're like stressed. The reader's like stressed along with you. So that's like a different skill set. Of the whole book, that section about you could have just have easily not been a mother. You can picture that life. You're glad you're a mother. You love your kids. You could also have pictured a different path. I thought of the whole book, that is the only time that felt purposely permission giving to me. Mm -hmm. And I know that we talked earlier about like, You're not self-helpy. You're not trying to teach anybody anything. You're, you know, just writing. And I, and I understand, I, I understand, but I did feel like that essay was teaching us how to be able to think these this way. Some, it's not that everyone is going to think that way or not, but there are so many things in motherhood. There are so many things in motherhood that we don't even allow ourselves to think. Yeah. Like we just won't even go there. And I felt like your essay on, This could have been different and it's okay to say that. I know you're not trying to teach us purposely, but it was a,
1: it was a teachable moment, I think. Yeah. I, thanks for saying that. I, yeah, I do think that if I have a gift in some way in writing, it is that I do want to be able to say the things out loud that I know a lot of people are thinking and that maybe they feel embarrassed or ashamed or write like it's wrong or it's not the right thing in the right company or whatever. Well, I will be the person. Listen, I'm great at a dinner party, you guys. I will be the person to bring the thing up that nobody wants to talk about, or I will say the thing that I'm not supposed to say. I will put my foot in my mouth and like make everyone else uncomfortable. I will be that person. And, And that comes from just having the confidence of knowing that my identity is not in being a mother. It's not. So I can say, I could have done it. I could have not done it. And either way, I don't derive my entire self-worth on being these children's mother. And so that's good for them. That's good for me. And it does give me that kind of freedom to be able to say, this isn't, this is something that I don't think I'm naturally gifted at. And yes, I could see a whole life where I didn't have kids and it could have been great. And I think that there are probably a lot of women who think that is the craziest thing they've ever heard. And they can't believe I would say that out loud. And you know what? For those people, that's true. They cannot imagine a life without children. And that's great. That's fine. But I do think there's a lot of women out there, especially those who maybe grew up in the South and had sort of a more traditional um, upbringing, a traditional teaching in terms of their their childhood, that they just thought that it was an inevitability. And I do think that that was me. I just assumed that that is the path my life would take. and And it has, and it's been great. But also- It could have been different. And I think it could have been wonderful. And I tell the story in there too about my dad, who my dad did not want to get married or have kids. And he ended up with both. And he was a wonderful, wonderful father. And that's why I think that gave me a little freedom to talk about this too, because we have this funny joke in our family that my dad did not want kids. And the story about how my mother got pregnant with my older sister, I can't tell in the book. That is the one story I did leave out because I do know kind of how it happened. But she sort of went around the, you know, the, the side sideways, but she ended up, you know, having my sister. And as she would always say, my dad showed up at the hospital when my sister was born and you would have thought he was the only man in the universe to ever have a baby. He was just over the moon smitten with this baby. He was a wonderful dad. And so we would always joke, oh yeah, dad didn't want to get married. Dad didn't want to have kids. And we could say that. And I also never felt anything but a hundred percent adored and treasured by him. So I, that gave me a little bit of freedom to be able to talk honestly, about my feelings about motherhood and know that my kids are still going to feel extremely loved and wanted and treasured by me.
0: Well, and that part of the book is like juxtaposed against other stories throughout the book where it's clear how much you love your kids. It is clear that you have built this beautiful life that you're sharing with us. And so that's why it was effective actually to write about it in that way. If that hadn't been so clear, that your children are loved and cared for immensely by you, then that essay might have hit different. You know what I mean? But I was tracking along with you exactly to be like, yes, it's natural for us to sort of fantasize about how our life could have looked different, including the parenthood piece. Yeah. And it doesn't it, it's not a referendum on our love or care for these little people. Yeah. So most, most of the time. Most of the time. <laughs> I loved your book. I loved it so much. It covers a lot of territory. You're such a good writer. We have covered a lot of territory in this conversation since I made you talk to me for a full two hours. And I I'm so it. grateful for it. So thank you for being here and sharing yourself with us on 10 Things to Tell You. Y'all, the book is called It Was an Ugly Couch Anyway. That's the title essay of the book. It is so good. It is out now. And I want you... To go get it. I actually listened to it on audio. Can I just say that?
1: I got to read this book and I did not read my first book. And so I got to read this book, which was so fun. I feel like maybe watching you do your audiobooks and some other authors that I follow that I that write similar types of nonfiction and I watch them narrate their own books. And everyone always talked about how it's really draining, it's really exhausting. Like, and I found it to be so much fun. I don't know, maybe I didn't. I don't know. Maybe I didn't take it as seriously as I should have, but I found it to be so much fun. I really love being able to read this book for for readers. And I just want to say at the end of the audiobook, I brought Lois into the studio and we just sort of had a long rambling chat. And it is rambling because she likes to ramble, but she is a really funny, just thoughtful, hilarious you know, strange and wonderful woman. And so, if you get the audiobook, you get like a little bonus content of me talking to Lois at the end of
0: the book. I thought the book was great on audio. I highly recommend it. It would be great for a road trip this summer. If you are driving or whatever, you're funny. I laughed out loud. Your delivery is great. This book was great on audio. I'm glad that I have the copy I can hold in my hand also because that's beneficial to me and I want to have it on my shelf, but I love listening to it on audio. And so I hope that others will too. Elizabeth, where can people follow you or learn more about you or read more of your writing? So I
1: am most active on Instagram and I am ES, as in Sam, ES Passarella. And yeah, I share apartment updates, renovation updates. Laura would like for me to share more. So I'm going to start, guys, this will be really boring reels of just men slowly plastering my walls. Laura says it's okay. He says that's what the people want and I want to give the people what they want. So we're going to have some just really slow videos of people, of paint drying and plaster drying. Though I do share apartment stuff and you can go, there's a highlight in my, on my Instagram page where you can go back and see the hoarder situation. Like I took so many pictures and the clean out of getting all the stuff out of the apartment. So it's, it's really, it's actually pretty fun to look through. So I'm on Instagram and yeah, my website, elizabethpassorella.com has just information on, you know, books and what they're about and all that good stuff.
0: Who here is surprised that I got real bossy with Elizabeth about how she's not posting enough on her Instagram. I mean, again, we've never met you guys. And I am just like, listen, let me tell you what you need to be posting here. I already told her she needed to change multiple <laughs> things. Yeah. It's it's who I am. I can't help who I am. I am who I am. I will link to Elizabeth's Instagram so that y'all can go follow her so that she can feel pressure to post more. <laughs> did my marketing manager remember, did um, they- Anyway, I loved this. Thank you so much for being here. It was
1: so fun. Thanks, Laura.
0: You've just listened to an episode of the 10 Things to Tell You podcast. For show notes and links, go to 10thingstotellyou.com. Make sure you're following us on Facebook and Instagram at 10 Things to Tell You. And you can also join our free connection group on Facebook to discuss episodes and topics. For bonus content, ad-free episodes, and monthly Zoom gatherings with me, join my Secret Stuff Patreon community by going to 10thingstotellyou.com slash stuff. Thanks for listening.